let us come before God in prayer, asking for his help as we look to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our rock. We thank you that you are our peace. You are our comfort, our ever-present help in our time of need. Lord, comfort us with your words. Comfort us with a reminder of who you are, what you have done, and the precious riches that we have in Christ. Lord, speak to us through your word to hear the things that you intended us first to hear and to understand from this passage we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, regardless of how long you have been at Eastgate, you've probably at some point heard an illustration which tells you very clearly that I do not like heights. There's one attraction in Melbourne above all of the things you could possibly do in Melbourne that you can guarantee that I will never do. The tallest building in the city, the Eureka Sky Deck, has this experience called the edge. It's like a nine meter square glass box inside the building, which when you enter it, all of the glass is frosted. You can't see anything. Then that glass box protrudes out from the building at 300 meters. And then all of a sudden, boom, the frosted glass turns to totally clear glass. And there you are, 300 meters down, you can see all the way straight down, it's like you're standing 300 meters above in the air. Now, there's some people who see an attraction like that and wish they'd pack their nappies. On the other hand, there are some people who are just thrill seekers and get a little bit cocky. They're the sort of person who thinks, I'm just going to go jumping in this thing to freak out all of the others. I'm probably more in the first of those two things. Now, if I was to be brave enough to enter into the edge, I guarantee I would be genuinely panic and in fear. Not because I have any doubt about the structural integrity of that building, but the idea of heights in my heart, it just absolutely freaks me out. I know the reality says certainty, but my heart says uncertainty. If there's a word that's been used frequently about 2020, it's uncertain, unpredictable. We're living in a year which we're not too sure what to expect, what it holds. Even Scott Morrison has made the statement a number of times, this could go on like this for at least six months. You need to prepare yourself for what he calls the new normal. Some introverts are already loving this time, all this time to themselves, so little people, after time that may wane a little bit. There are others who are thinking, six months, is it six months yet? There are questions that this situation raises. Questions about our jobs, questions about our income, about our houses, about our mortgage, about the things that I'd hope to do this year. Are they even going to take place? There's so many things that we just don't know and they are totally outside of our control that we can't do a single thing about them. Last Sunday, we got a puppy. Now, as it turns out, 
Chloe is not only cute, but she's a theologian. Just within a period of two days of living with us, she didn't just have a few restrictions placed upon her like we done. Every single thing that was normal and natural to her was changed in an instant. And within the space of two days, she came to realize, I belong to these people. These people are going to love me and look after me. And there was peace. She was settled. She was comfortable. Certainty is not about knowing what the future holds. Certainty is about knowing who holds the future. And because as Christians we know the one who holds the future, whose character is good, who has all powerful, we know we do not need to fear or to worry in these uncertain times. Think about Paul, not just for six months, for two years, he has been under house arrest with constant attempts to bring charges against him with not a single Roman who's willing to say that they've done anything legally wrong, but he doesn't know what's the outcome, what's next. Even if the case was to be solved, what would happen after that? There's so much uncertainty. So this morning, we're going to look through our passage in these headings. Firstly, the case that won't go away in verses 1 to 5. Hearing what the charges are in verses 6 to 12. What do we do with all this? Verses 13 to 22. And as we wrap it up, having certainty amidst the uncertainty. In terms of the case that just won't go away, so far, Paul has given an answer to the crowds, to the tribune, to the Sanhedrin and before the governor Felix. Now the Jews haven't liked what they've heard. Every single Roman who has heard the case has made it very clear, I can't see anything wrong that this Paul has done. Yet when we got to the end of Acts chapter 24 last week, we saw that Felix, wanting to carry favour with the Jews, placed Paul under house arrest and he was there for at least two years, just waiting, wondering what is next. Now, despite the fact that the case has already gone before Felix and he says, I find nothing wrong with Paul, they want to keep chipping away. They won't let it go. It's like they think, if I just keep on chipping away, eventually we'll get the result we want. Felix is gone. Festus is on the scene. It's a little bit like a, a child playing off the two parents. You've heard the answer from one parent. Let's go ask the other one and see if we get the answer that we want. As Festus takes on this role of governor, you get the impression in chapter 25 that he actually wants to sort it out. He realizes it's a long standing case and he wants to get to the bottom of it and do justice according to the book. But if he is committed to doing justice according to the book, equally you can say the Sanhedrin is committed to ongoing pursuing the charges against Paul. But as they are interacting with Festus, they put it to him in such a way that sounds like they want to help about, bring about the legal process. How about we bring Paul to Jerusalem and put him on trial, they say. But it Really what they're asking is not actually asking for a trial. 
What they're asking for is for Paul to be transported from Caesarea to Jerusalem so that along the way they can assassinate him and have him killed. Because ultimately, I don't think they want to put him on trial because they know from what they've heard from all the previous attempts that the trial's not going to stand up. It's all been around religious matters and the Romans do not have laws regarding Jewish customs and practices. The primary aim is to have Paul assassinated. It's not a new plan. It's the same plan we saw back in Acts chapter 23. They're hoping to assassinate Paul along the way. Now we don't know if Festus is aware of that particular plan. But we do know that he does not give in to that request. Rather, he suggests he has some of the Jewish leaders accompany him to Caesarea because he's going there in a few days. And said, so now we'll hear it all out and we'll get it all sorted. Like he really seems like he wants the course and the case to be completely figured out. He's been there in two years in prison. Surely something must be missed. We hear all the evidence and let's get this done and dusted. Look there in verse 5. So he said, let the men of authority among you come down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. In other words, if there is a case, let justice be served. If there's not a case, let it go just like Elsa would. Now for Paul, at least from a human perspective, there's so much uncertainty, so much outside of his control. Yet there seems to be a peace and a certainty about him, even in the middle of all of the uncertainty. So has there been some things overlooked in this case? Well, let's have a look at the charges in verses 6 to 12. Now Festus is quite well aware there's a Jewish element to this particular case. And so he spends eight to ten days along with the Jewish leaders, helping to understand their context and what's going on with Paul. And it presumes as they come together, what the Jewish leaders say about Paul is not particularly different to what they've said about him in the past. There's no record in Acts 25 of the specific things that are said against him. But if you take to what has been said in the past, they've said that he is opposed to the Jews. He's opposed to the law of Moses. He's opposed to the Jewish customs and he's opposed to the temple. But when we read into the response that Paul gives in verse 8, there's another thing which they may have added into the case to carry further support for them. They say, Paul says, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offence. I mean, so far, all of the claims have been of a religious nature. But as Paul says, I've done nothing against Caesar. Maybe they've drawn out this trump card of let's add in some civil charges as well. So it might actually carry some weight before a Roman judge. Maybe they're thinking back to, to the case of Jesus, where it was all primarily religious matters until such point they put forward the case of this guy's claiming to be a king. This guy is a threat to the emperor himself. But because they've heard time and time again, they realize the religious case is not going to give them the result they want. I mean, just remember the, the verdict that Felix gave back in chapter 23. In verse 29 of that chapter, he says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law. 
but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Which is strange coming from the man who put him in house prison for two years. But two years on, Paul's still in the exact same place. Still 100% confident that he has lived in good conscience before God right up still till this moment. And at the same time, the religious leaders continue to bring many serious charges against Paul. But note what it says. But they could not prove any of them. They've had two years to work on this. They put forward a case and they could not prove a single element of it. Now, Paul's not trying to sly his way out of consequences. Like Paul is quite open. It's a very refreshing approach. Look at what he says. He says, if I've done something in which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Did you hear that? If my actions deserve death, give me death. When was the last time you've had someone demand they receive justice if they deserve it? You know what happens. We try to make up excuses of why we should avoid consequences. Like you may have even done it this week. You're driving along. You know there's a speed camera coming up. So the moment you get close to the speed camera, you slow down, you get past the speed camera, and then you speed up again. In other words, in your mind you say, I'm going to do whatever I like. I know it's not the right thing, but I don't think I'm causing anyone any trouble. But what I will do is I'll do the right thing at the time where it minimizes the chances of me having any consequences for it. Maybe that's why people don't like the gospel. Because we have this entitled idea of we deserve to get away with doing things. That we shouldn't receive the consequences for our actions. Even if our actions against God are the most serious actions we've ever done. To think that the God who has made us, who's blessed us with everything, who wants to bless us with all of his goodness, and we turn our back on him and say, I don't want you in my life. I'm going to live my own way. I don't need you. Thanks for all the stuff you've given me, but I don't want you. And we think, no, there shouldn't be consequences for that. But like the driver, I'm, I'm not hurting anyone if I go a little bit fast. I know it's not the rules, but surely there shouldn't be any consequences. Now, Festus knows the Jews want a conviction. But when there's nothing in their case to get that conviction, his hands are tied. But he still wants to keep them on board. So he says to Paul, how about you come back to Jerusalem with me and I will weigh up this case and I will be the judge in this matter and we can get it all sorted out. Now, we don't know why Paul doesn't take up this offer. It could be because he doesn't think it's going to be a fair trial that you know, the, the high priest, the Sanhedrin are all going to, to stack up against him. Or maybe he's aware of the sort of plans that people want to have him assassinated along the way. Or maybe 
There's even this aspect in which he understood that God has already told him. Jesus stood by his side, comforted him, saying, Just as you were born witness for, before me here, you will bear witness to me in Rome. Now, we don't know what the particular case is, but Festus can't say no. Paul is a Roman citizen. If he says, I want my case to be heard by Caesar, his case is to be heard by Caesar. It all seems so uncertain. But in the middle of that, there is certainty. There is a definite peace. But before he goes to Caesar, King Herod Agrippa arrives on the scene. Agrippa arrives with Bernice, who's his sister, who, according to the historical writings of Josephus, was widely thought that, that they were actually in an incestuous relationship together. Herod Agrippa II was also the last of the Herods, which have had a significant role in the early days of Christianity. Let me just see some of the details from some of his relatives. You've got Herod the Great, who is Agrippa's great-grandfather, who wanted to kill the infant Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, 13 and 16. You've got Herod Antipas, which is Agrippa's great-uncle. I don't know if great-uncle is actually a title, but that would be what it would be, who had John the Baptist beheaded. You've got Herod Agrippa I, who is Agrippa's father, who killed the Apostle James and arrested Peter in Acts chapter 12. So there's a quieter heritage along the Herods. Now, as this newly appointed king of the Jews comes on as part of his role to check in with the governors of the areas, he enters into discussions with Felix. And part of those discussions is, oh, sorry, with Festus, part of those discussions are that there's this prisoner, Paul, who Felix has placed into prison for two years. We haven't got a case yet. I've had words with the Jewish rulers, and I'm just not too sure what to do. Can you? He's, it's like he's seeking for advice. It's very clear, verse 15, the Jews don't want a trial. Festus says they want a sentence of condemnation. They want death penalty. Paul is requested to be heard by Caesar, Festus is obligated to provide a cover letter saying what the nature of this case is. And he's like, it's all religious stuff. I, there is no legal case. Why am I even bringing this before Caesar? You see, he's totally surprised. He's, he's almost shocked at how poor the case is. Look at the words in verses 17 and 18. So when they came here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and they ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge of his case of such easels as I supposed. He was so certain that they would have a decent case and he's like, I'm shocked, I'm surprised. They didn't have anything. They had some religious matters about Jewish practices and something about this guy named Jesus who died and they claiming was alive. Now that's a significant factor itself. In the last couple of chapters we've seen in Paul's defense or some of the accusations about the resurrection of the dead, of a general resurrection of those who have died. 
But now for the first time, the specific central heart of the matter is Jesus Christ resurrected. Because as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Jesus' resurrection is the foundation and the basis of all resurrections. If Jesus has not been raised, then not anybody will be raised. This is the heart of the issue. The same one who said he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many, who would bear the sins of sinful mankind, has also been raised from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin, Satan and death, and has raised and is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Herod Agrippa II, like his uncle Antipas, it's like, I'm curious to meet this guy. And we'll hear about that exchange in a couple of weeks. But what do we do? How do we respond to this passage? What does it say about certainty in the middle of uncertainty? For Paul, there are two whole years of complete uncertainty. What's going on with this case? Will these charges continue? What will happen if I'm innocent? Will they come and, and assassinate me? Like he presumes, most likely, the end is he's going to be put to death. But Paul is pictured as a figure who is at peace, who is calm. And you think, come on. How can anybody have peace and calm in the middle of such turmoil and uncertainty? Now, I'm sure there were times when Paul genuinely got worried might have even had little moments of panic. Not because he didn't believe that God was sovereign and that God was working all things for his good, but a little bit like the situation with the, with the Eureka Sky Deck, head says, everything's good. Heart says, no. And I wanted to tell us to exercise a degree of caution as to how we think about other Christians during these uncertain times. I'd caution you about judging other Christians faith based on the fact they might feel a bit nervous, a bit anxious, a bit stressed in the current climate. Just because they might feel nervous or anxious does not mean they do not have a confident faith in God. Just like if I was there in the Eureka Sky Deck, if I'm there crying like a little baby, it's not because I don't believe in the structural integrity of the building or the engineers who put it together. It's just what my heart feels. It's not what I believe. And if in anything, those who really struggle with how they feel with nerves and anxiety at this time, to cling to God in faith actually says something of a great and stronger faith than one who doesn't feel that way. But for Paul and for every single one of us, in the middle of all of this uncertainty, there can be a solid certainty and peace right there in the middle of it. Because there is a greater invisible certainty that can be banked on. Well, sure, a lot of the visible things, they will be uncertain. But some of these uncertainties, what, how much they affect us, reveals to us what things we value the most. What things matter most to me? What things most define who I am? Because if those things are taken away, if they are the things which define me, that will genuinely affect me in a serious way.
And I can tell you, if your strongest sense of who I am is what I do, where I live, what I have, who I have around me, then these will be really unsettling times. But if your strongest sense of who I am is, I am a child of God, bought with the precious blood of Christ, who is with me and has promised to be with me to the end of the age, who is working all things for my good, who can turn even this COVID-19 situation and use it for my good, who is indwelling me with his spirit and whose character is always good and who is all powerful and is able to do abundantly more than all I ever ask or imagine. I can have a peace and a certainty that surpasses and greatly excels any of the uncertainties of the physical surroundings around me. If you have Christ, you have everything. You could take away some of the temporary things, some of the physical things, but if you are in Christ, you have lost nothing. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 34, those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. It's not a promise that nothing will be taken away from you, but nothing that you genuinely need in God can be taken away from you by the circumstances you find yourself within. It's such a massive comfort to those of us to say, I have Jesus, I have everything. The uncertainty of this environment, this situation, cannot take even the slightest minute part of that away. But it also holds out a hope to those who are wondering, how? How can I have hope when everything I cling on to so dearly is under threat? My job, my income, my house, my plans for this year. The same Jesus Christ who said he came to lay down his life to bear the punishment for the sins of mankind. Puts forward that same offer to those who have not yet trusted in him. Saying, turn from your sin, turn and trust in me. My death was your death in your place. And you too can have Christ. And in Christ, you can have all of the spiritual riches. You can have everything pertaining to life and godliness. And nothing can take that away. I can't promise you a time frame. I can't say after this amount of time, everything will go back to normal. I can't even promise you as much as I'd like to, that none of these things would have any impact on you at all. But I can promise you, if you are seeking the Lord, you will lack no good thing. That he can actually take this situation and use it for your good. Now, one thing I really look forward to is to hear people's later reflections after the event, how God used circumstances during this time to draw us nearer to him. That we actually look back and we say, that was a blessing. That was a time when God really was at work in my life or how he worked in someone's life around me because of this situation. I wonder about Paul. As he puts his case to go towards Caesar, was it just because it seemed like the safest option? Or is it something that he looks back upon and saying, 
you know what? I remember when Jesus promised me that I would bear witness to him in Rome. And here I am. It seems so uncertain. But in the middle of all the uncertainty, God's plans, they unfold and they work for good. The visible aspects we see around us are uncertain. But in Christ, we can have a certainty and a peace that is way beyond anything of the challenges that this COVID-19 situation could throw at us. And we give thanks for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that those who seek you lack no good thing. Lord, even at times to lose something can be gain. But we thank you that none of the riches that we have in Christ can be stolen, taken away in any way whatsoever. Thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your love for a hurting world and for, a, for an anxious world. Lord, we pray that many would find their hope and security in you. That they too might be able to say, I have Christ and that is enough. That is more than I could ever ask for. We thank you, our Lord, our God and our Saviour. In Jesus' name, Amen.